welcome in. Welcome in. Glad you guys are with us here. On the other side, welcome into the West Texas Accessory Depot Studios. Go see the folks at Accessory Depot on 82nd and Valencia and Lubbock for all your car or truck accessory needs. And get this, other side listeners can get a free row of WeatherTech liners with the purchase of a bed cover. Check them out at 806-866-9494 or WTAccessoryDepot.com. So a couple of things, the dream is over now, Texas Tech. I wouldn't say that the dream's necessarily over. Well, I mean, you can, we can do the next year thing, but for this year, the dream is done. It and is. Villanova is a little bit like just putting your head down and running as fast as you can into a brick wall. Like, those guys, absolutely 100%, they're going to win the tournament. Oh, did you do a bracket? No, I, I did I had them going you all You had the way. them winning. Yeah. You had uh-huh. them beating Tech? Little sister. Yeah, I know. Well, Where's I actually that? had tech going to the elite. Li- my bracket was See, amazing. See, now that's cla- <laughs> let me just stop you for just a second. That's classic Lubbock. That's classic Lubbock person right there. I want to say classic Lubbock guy, but that's classic Lubbock. Hedging, hedging my bets. Hedging. I'm going to root for the Red Raiders, and then whenever it comes down to the money. Well, if you know, <laughs> if you know, they're not going to win. Man, I but had you watched Villanova play before last night? Yeah, I love basketball. I love basketball, all basketball. Man, I did not realize they were so good. Oh, Beastly, and 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 Gonzaga as well. And then the the East All-Tournament team came out, the east side of the bracket, and it was Keenan Evans, and it was a Purdue guy, and three Villanova players. Mm -hmm. That's that's a rough draw. But, I mean... We're going to be awesome, and Kirby Hokut can charge whatever he wants to next season. Well, we made history. We did. We had been to the Sweet 16 technically one time, but in literal history twice. But they took all that other stuff away from us. Oh, that's a shame. We were cheating a little bit there. Yeah. So, you know, here, you know, the new dirty word at our house, like, I've got. Charity and I have a list of words that the kids cannot say mm-hmm. because we are leasons. That's awesome. That's our deal. Like, will they say, well, are they leasons? No. And so that's always our smackdown. But a new a new word that the boys have decided, my Jack and Sam, who are eight, and just gravitating towards sports, and they love it. And they were just watching all, like, NFL and now to NCAA basketball. Pretty soon they'll get big on Texas Tech baseball. If they if they have the patience yeah. to endure it, yeah. But Baseball the boys, the boys have a new dirty word. <laughs> Something that's been banned from our house. Like you cannot say this word anymore. What and is the that? word is senior. Senior. Because yeah, we're sitting there and we're watching University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Shout out to Dan Patrick, Danny Gobe, who's now the lieutenant governor. Dan Patrick went to UMBC. And the boys were sitting there watching them, and I said, now look, and I know that my boys are like so high and so low that I've got to prepare them for mm-hmm. things. And yeah. so I said, boys, look, I need you to understand something. Like I pause the TV, I make them stand in front of me with their hands behind their back. The next time Texas Tech loses, Keenan Evans is not going to play at Texas Tech anymore. And Sam looks at me and says, what are you talking about? What does that mean? 
And I said, well, he's played for four years now at Texas Tech. So now, whenever he graduates, he can't play anymore. It's called being a senior. And Sam, at that point, is indignant. And he looks at Jack, and Jack gets indignant, too. Being a senior is stupid. And then they said a bunch of words that they are not allowed to say. And describing their disappointment with the reality that there is such a thing as being a senior. And you've got to move on. You've got to go on. That's so funny. So you cannot say the word senior. That's really cute. They're eight. They're eight. And they are just figuring out that <laughs> you can't play at Texas Tech forever. So That's the real dream that ended. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I had that kind of reality whenever I realized that Jason Sasser had to move on and Will Flemons <laughs> and all those guys. Shout out to the old Red Raiders there. <laughs> You know, look, we're setting up the show today. Great show for you ahead. We have Ross Ramsey, two of the great journalism guys in Texas. They're going to be on the show today. Ross Ramsey is executive editor of the Texas Tribune. He's going to join us here in about 10 minutes, and he's going to talk to us about what's going on in the Texas legislature and in Texas politics altogether. We're going to get into some redistricting. That's going to become the name of the game in Texas politics. If you're new to Texas politics, you're just tuning in. We're going to take it slow. We're going to let you get on board. We talk about Texas politics because I would argue to you there's no form of government involved in your life, even though, um, you know, nine out of ten people could talk to me at length about Stormy Daniels last night on 60 Minutes. And whenever the administration, let's just say this for just whenever the administration comes back and says well we found some inaccuracies in her in her interview Mm. like that's all you got like is she lying or is she not right well there are some inaccuracies are are polygraphs like a real thing is it effective to some people i don't know it's kind of like a ouija board sort of situation Uh, i don't know i don't know how those hold up sell those at target ouija boards yeah i went to go buy monopoly the other day and found a ouija and so you bought a ouija board no (laughs) okay all right but your soul's still intact yeah definitely those that's that's crazy to me no so back to this other thing for just a second don't get me down that road i I will that so uh the administration inaccuracies. I can't, how did I even get there? What was I about to say? Oh, Ross Ramsey. Yeah. We, uh, state, the reason we talk about state government like we do is because there's no other form of government involved in your life if you live in the great state of Texas that has more bearing on your day-to-day life. From your property taxes uh, to what you can and can't carry, where you can carry those things, into what restroom, the whole situ- the whole gambit. And that's why we spend so much time on the other side of Texas. And quite frankly, we advocate and we holler for more representation in other sides of Texas. Uh, but Ross Ramsey's coming up here in about now seven minutes because we got off on the Ouija board tangent. Yeah, and, sorry about that. And, then, and then at 5.30... S.C. Gwynn is coming on this yes, show. Very the, exciting. The author of em, uh, Empire of the Summer Moon about the Comanches and Randall McKenzie. And uh, that is going to be a great listen. We're going to take him a little long, so just get dialed in now. It's going to be up on iTunes later, as well as the website uh, coming up in about 20 minutes uh, will be S.C. Gwynn. Uh, but it reminds me of this weekend. Let me tell another dad story for just a second. Okay. So we're a part of an adventure club group 
and it's based out of Lubbock in, in Plainview. And so I get together with a bunch of guys, mm-hmm. like middle age. Am I middle age? Can you call me middle age? Well, I don't want to ask how old you are on air. I'm 39. Yeah, Does it make me middle age? Okay, so so I'm hanging out with middle age guys, a bunch of great middle age guys. I mean, they're fantastic. And so I'm gonna blow your mind for just a second. What? My mom's only three years older than you. <laughs> Hello, daughter. <laughs> I didn't mean that literally. <laughs> no, I know. I know. Okay. So we go to Copper Breaks, which is up by Quana, and this is all gonna make sense here in a moment. But we had a great time at copper breaks and it's us and our daughters and it's called adventure princess weekend and it comes time to name the tribes so a bunch of young girls and we got two tribes present and we got to name our tribes and the other group not my group there's no way this would happen on my watch they choose the name comanches as their tribe name and I watched this go down, and I'm, like, holding my hand over my mouth, like, you did not. Like, you live on the Yano Estacado, and you're going to name a group of people Comanche? Like, that might as well be a slur. Yeah. Like, you Comanche. Like, these were brutal, brutal people. Yeah. They were they were the roughest, tumblest, hardest core people who ever lived on the North American continent. And they lived right here in the Great Plains going down into Texas, into the Caprock. Yeah, I mean, I believe it because this is kind of a harsh land. I imagine living, you know, Indian style. Yeah, and nobody's written about the topography of the land, the cartography of the land. Nobody has taken it up into written word like S.C. Gwynn has. I mean, it is just remarkable. And we'll read some is quotes. Is he from here? No, he's just, he's a former executive editor of the Texas mm-hmm. Monthly. He's written a few different books, but they vary in, in what their subject matter is concerning. But we'll ask him himself why he took up this, what inspired him. That yeah. may be my first question on the gate. But I look at these guys, to these fellow dads with these precious daughters, who they're calling Comanches. And whenever you read Empire of the Summer Moon, and you read about the sort of barbary the uh, barbarianism that the comanches were up to and they just thought it was fun yeah they like terrible things like r- they would tie babies up behind uh, horses and drag them oh through cactus patch That's like terrible oh my what gosh. and i realized that if we're going to talk about barbarianism you got to talk about it from both sides and yeah. okay so you guys killed off a whole food supply with the buffaloes and the, the, but regardless if if we do relativize it and say, well, the U.S. government did this, but, you know, the Comanches did this, and go back and forth and play that sort of relativity ping pong, at the end of the day, calling a group of girls, a group of good, red-blooded American girls, Comanches, is a lot like the Comanches taking up a new reservation build and calling it the Randall McKenzie Resort and Casino. Like, that's not going to happen. So why are we doing it? And so I was just just perplexed. So it came time to name our tribe. What, yeah. And having read S.C. Gwynn, Sam Gwynn, having read Sam Gwynn's Empire of the Summer Moon, if you got to have a tribe involved with the, with the Comanches, then what you do, 
is you call your tribe the Tonkawas because the Tonkawas helped Randall McKenzie of their own volition go track down the Comanches. So that's what my weekend was about. My little Tonkawa. That's pretty awesome. I will not have a little Comanche. That's not what Leeson's do. Hey, uh, we're going to go to break. Coming up, it's going to be the one and only Ross Ramsey. You stick right with us here on Other Side of Texas. City after we played the show, shots rang out as I stumbled home. So I hit this segment of Other Side of Texas brought to you by Flint Boot and Hat Shop. They've been building hats since 1994, repairing boots since forever. Jared and his guys can make your hat great and make your boots great again. Check them out Flint Avenue and 34th Street in Lubbock, flinthat.com. Friend of years, friend of tears, editor of the Texas Tribune, Ross Ramsey. How you doing? Well, I'm doing fine now. Would you believe I lost your phone number? And I was digging around for it. Oh. You texted me a minute ago. Yeah. So here I am late. I apologize. I was doing two things at once. I was, I was running a very well-performing radio program while I was texting you. I can't even recall what I was saying, Ross. <laughs> There were no dirty words, I'll, I'll put it that way. No, there weren't, because uh, part of my contract here at AM580 is that I'm responsible for all FCC fines. So, let's go from here. Uh, redistricting, For I promised newcomers that we would lay this out in layman's terms. How often do we redistrict? When does redistricting begin, and why is it such a big deal in Texas? Uh, we have to redistrict every 10 years, right after they do the census. We can redistrict, as Tom DeLay proved in court, anytime we want to. <laughs> um, but we have to redistrict every time they do the census. They're doing the next one in 2020. When the legislature comes in in 2021, they'll draw new maps for our congressional districts, for our Senate districts, for our Texas House districts, and for our State Board of Education districts. And it's the and legislature then, that's drawing the maps. Right. If the legislature fails to do that, then there's a weird little committee of five statewide officials who do who do it. It always goes to court afterwards. Um, you know, it's not even cynical to say that anymore. It's almost like a, a perpetual motion machine, and it'll stay in court for a long time. In fact, the maps that were initially drawn in 2011 are still stuck in federal court today. Hmm. Still. So, so will that come up before still. 2020? Well, you know, they only have one more. You know, there's a there's an outside chance that the judges could change the districts that are now in place and ask us to have new primary elections in a few state house and congressional districts. And I would say that's impossible, but they did it in 1996 and they did it again in 2006. Um, but chances are that they're not going to do it before this election, in which case there will only be one more election left before the census is done. So... You know, some just courts, they like not having any courts at all. So does this become the issue of the 86th and 87th legislature? I don't think it'll be the issue of the 86th legislature because that'll be 
the legislature that's waiting for this to happen. The 87th legislature, this is going to be the first thing on their plate. Okay. Tell us a little bit. By and large, we have a rural audience. Tell us a little bit about what the one-county rule is and why that's important in rural Texas. When you're drawing Texas House seats, you can't cross a county line unless you have to. So you, you draw your starting point, and you use all the voters. That, you have to use all the voters in the county where you start before you can cross a county line, grab voters from another county. Has this been, a, let me just cut in for one, has this been the precedent since the Civil War? Uh, no, actually it was established, as I understand it, in a court case started by Tom Craddock of Midland. Oh, wow. Who thought that they were un- unnecessarily breaking up counties in order to protect some incumbents and to protect some party interests. And he said, basically, you have to honor geography and communities of interest first. And in Texas House districts, this doesn't apply in Senate districts or congressional districts. But in Texas House districts, uh, you have to, uh, you can't just break counties up unless you're, you know, basically out of people and you still need to, you know, you still got some room in the sack. Okay, so we divide them up by county in the house. That makes sense. Right. Now, okay. you'll, find, you'll find broken county lines, and you'll find counties that are all fragmented up. So if you go to an urban county like a Dallas or a Houston or a Travis, uh, they can draw a number of house districts without ever crossing a county line, and they do. Eventually, they get to one where they say, well, we don't quite have enough people here, and they'll jump a county line for that, and that's where you'll see little bubbles come up into other counties let's uh pivot then ross ramsey at ross ramsey on twitter talk to us a little bit about how you think texas may find a new way to call itself a red state well i think uh what's going on here is we've got a bunch of stuff piling up in the budget and the controller came out last week and told the senate finance committee look you guys have a bunch of things coming on and if you don't take care of them the bond rating companies are going to lower the rating on Texas bonds, which are right now triple A's, and increase the price of those. He's talking about things like potential problems in the teacher retirement system. There's some unfunded liabilities there. Texas pensions are not in the shape of, say, Illinois pensions or some of the states that are really in deep trouble, but they're on the watch list. And uh, he's pointing to that and a number of other things. There's a Medicaid shortfall. There's a liability in something called the Texas Tomorrow Fund, where the state promised to pay tuition for people with contracts but didn't charge enough for the contracts, so they're on the hook for a quarter of a billion dollars. There's a pile of stuff like that, and the next legislature is going to come in more than $8 billion, um, looking at an $8 billion problem. And it's not a deficit, and it's not a hole in their budget necessarily, but it would cost $8 billion more dollars keep doing the things they're doing now so they'll be in kind of a twist wow so that sounds like a um a texter's asking if tom craddock served in the civil war i don't i don't think that that's an important question right now the uh, eight billion how many do we have in how many do how much do we have right now in the rainy day we have 11 point we're going to have 11.2 billion at the end of this cycle so okay. we're going to have another question about the rainy day fund and whether you know, you always come down to this question of how much money do you think you need to spend, how much money do you think you want to spend, and how much money do you have? And the Texas legislature has, for the last, you know, 
couple of decades been very reluctant to spend money from the Economic Stabilization Fund, which is also called the Rainy Day Fund. It's basically a savings account. And it's big and fat right now because it's filled with uh, money, frankly, from fracking. Uh, the fracking boom really piled in, you know, oil and gas revenues and filled that fund up. But the legislature has seen a number of fiscal problems over the years um, that they didn't think were big enough to use the rainy day fund for. One of the big ones right now is Hurricane Harvey and the rebuild after that. Yeah. A couple of minutes here left with you ross is electioneering happening in these schools to your in your point of view i think a couple of schools have crossed the line uh the line here is you know the schools can take kids to you know voting age kids to the polls in fact there's a state law that requires them to register kids who are 18 and so they're kind of in that business and they can use school buses and say hey we're going to take everybody to the polls vote how you want do whatever you want they can't tell them how to vote. That's where you get the word electioneering. And a couple of superintendents who, you know, I mean, if, you, if you're if um, you being charitable about it, you would say superintendents aren't, aren't necessarily political people and don't make the same kind of distinctions that political people make when they're deciding whether to use their personal phone or their work phone for some kind of political stuff. It's legal for your superintendent to say, I'm going to support Jay Leeson for mayor. It's not legal for your superintendent to tell students to vote and use the superintendent Twitter account or email account or telephone to tell people to vote for Jay Leeson for mayor. And a couple of them have stumbled on that line. I think most of them are probably well-intentioned and, you know, trying to get kids to take part in civics. But, you know, a lot of people in Austin are nervous about Uh, what they're doing. They're nervous about the anger of teachers and some educators at this legislature right now. And, you know, everybody's kind of on thin ice about this. Well, uh, what do we have coming up? TextTribune.org. Ross writes a column, uh, an analysis piece, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. What do you got coming up? You know, we're working on a lot of stuff. We're finally getting a little bit of a turn from, you know, this constant legislating and, uh, you know, and, and running elections, and, and we can talk about policy and some of the things the legislature's doing now. Uh, we're working on a bunch of census stories. We're working on some of the projects that we would have been starting this summer if we hadn't had a special legislative session. I think it's going to be a really interesting spring. Well, you can follow them there, texastribune.org and at Ross Ramsey on Twitter. Pleasure as always. Thank you for coming on, Ross. Enjoyed it, brother. I'll keep your phone number where I can find it next time. All right. All right. Stick with us right here. Coming up, Sam Gwynn, S.C. Gwynn. I need to ask him, what's the best way to say it, S.C. or yeah. Sam? Maybe we're good enough friends now. That, yeah, maybe. I, mean, I don't know Sam. him, but maybe I can go on buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. How about old Sam Gwynn? Sam Speaking Gwynn, you're going to join us right after this break. Stick with us right here on the other side of Texas. I was just 15 and out of control Lost to James Dean and rock and roll I knew down deep in Molded out of red clay and baked in the West Texas sun to perfection is The Other Side of Texas with Jay Leeson. Adios, goodbye amigos 
Welcome back in. This segment is brought to you by Lubbock File Room, providing safe and secure document storage and shredding services to Lubbock and the surrounding areas since 1992 for a free and hassle-free estimate. Call 806-744-7666 at 744-7666 today. You know, little sister, whenever I was in English classes at Mm -hmm. Texas Tech University, they said, English look, classes are hard at tech. Yeah, the literature. They said, look, references and alliteration in American literature, 85% comes from the Bible, 5% from Shakespeare, and 10% from everywhere else. And if I could download into my brain three works, it'd be the Bible, Hamlet, and Empire of the Summer Moon. All that to say, I'm glad to have S.C. Gwynn join the program, author of Empire of the Summer Moon. How are you? Well, we got a lot to get into. So you write, it's pretty eclectic. You've just done a book on the evolution of college football, Hal Mummy and Mike Leach. I'm giving my heart a tap right here with Mike Leach. The Perfect Pass. You've written Rebel Yell, which is a book about Stonewall Jackson and his service, a great and tragic American hero. But what we brought you on to talk about on Yano Estacado Radio is Empire of the Summer Moon about Quanta Parker and the rise and fall of the Comanches, the most powerful Indian tribe in American history. Sam, tell us how, what inspired you to take up this work? I mean, you almost won a Pulitzer with this work. I mean, it's fantastic. There's a reason I want to download it. But what got you interested in the subject in the first place? Well, at first, I mean, I, I think that the first thing that caught my eye was, I'm a, I'm a Connecticut Yankee, so I come down here, and I just, I've now been here 24 years, so I, I think I qualify as a semi-Texan now. My daughter's 100% Texan. But, you know, when I came here, one of the things that hit me over the head was how close Texas was to its frontier. Not only, not only in time, you know, it was 1875 when Quanah brought in, you know, the last of the starving Comanches in around Lubbock, right? Mm-hmm. That was the end of the, the frontier. There was a lot of jostling on and off the res, you know, into the 20th century, I, I met people whose great-grandparents had been killed in Austin by Comanches. I met uh, like some guy whose grandfather had ridden with Quana. I mean, this was really close in Texas and is really close. The frontier is right there in Texas. It's right there in history. I, I, I tell everybody, I think Texans live on a frontier, mental frontier anyway. I think they do in the most positive sense of the word. Yeah. But So I saw this stuff, and I'm a guy from Connecticut. And I go, wow, that's really cool. And all and the tribe featured in so many of the stories uh, about Texas were were Comanches, which I had never really heard of except in John Wayne movies. I mean, you know, they were when people when they yeah, wanted the to danger code, they go they go the uh, sergeant that's a Comanche arrow. That would mean like super danger, right? But I didn't know anything past that. But the what interested me was not only all that, but that all the stories of Comanches. You know, I thought of Native Americans in terms of dance and rich culture. And, you know, rituals and religion and dance and art and music and all the rich cultural things we associate with Native Americans. All these stories were about war and death and mutilation and blood. Uh, and, be, and the reason they were is because Texans fought a 40-year war against Comanches. And so I just was fascinated, and, and I just thought, and there was that. And then the final thing I'll say is that, and then the whole idea that the end of the frontier, the very last thing that went down was right where you're sitting. That's the end of the frontiers. And, you know, we push westward across America, right? We got to California, but California was settled first, you know. 
the last place to go is right where you're sitting there. And that idea of, you know, the end of limitlessness, the end of the frontier, it happened on the, you know, palisaded plain. So, you know, anyway. <laughs> the pal- let me quote you for just a moment before I ask my next question. Uh, the, that came from Coronado. Uh, palisaded plains of West Texas, a country populated exclusively by the most hostile Indians on the continent where few U.S. soldiers had ever gone before. The Llano was a place of extreme desolation, a vast, trackless, and featureless ocean of grass where white men became lost and disoriented and died of thirst, a place where the Imperial Spanish had once marched confidently forth to hunt Comanches only to find that they themselves were the hunted the ones to be slaughtered. So Sam Gwynn, let me ask you first about Comanches and then let's move over to the Union solution to the Comanches. Tell listeners who are unfamiliar with this story, how did the Comanches became become what they were? In in your own words, the most hostile Indians on the continent. So they were they were they were well, they were hostile on many different levels, but I mean, they were, they were, uh, the other Plains Indians were hostile, but there was a particular quality to, let's say, the Plains Indians that were out where, where you were, those, the, the particular bands uh, that inhabited that area. But here's what happened, in, in a nutshell. You have Comanches, uh, historically, uh, this is uh, before any horses arrived in North America, there are no horses, so imagine no horses. It's just Native Americans living here and no horses, and Comanches are up in the Wind River Mountains somewhere, a tribe that you know, does not have the richest hunting grounds. Uh, Spanish come north, right, from Mexico. We think of they're coming to Santa Fe along the Rio Grande, right? They bring a lot of horses with them, and at some point the horses get out. Spanish understand that they shouldn't let them out, but they do get out. And the technology gets out, too. So horses plus technology and the... Essentially, it's more complicated than this, but the tribe that become, that comes into possession of the full horse technology, the guys who are better at everything to do with horses, riding, hunting, fighting, breaking, breeding, stealing, everything, are Comanches. So what they do, now Now we're up in, we're not sure exactly where they are, but we, let's say we're starting in the Wind River Mountains. What happens is, is when the Comanches become mounted, it tilts the balance of power in the plains. And what they do is what you would expect them to do, the great new power in the, in the center of the American continent, is they challenge for the single richest food source on the plains, which, or, well, buffalo were the, was the food source, and the, the richest source was in the southern plains. There were buffalo up north, but most of them were down in, let's say, the Texas panhandle, uh, west Texas, right? So... So that's what happens. So you have in the 17th century this incredible sort of movement south where suddenly Comanches are showing up. They're stopping the Spanish in their movement north. They're stopping the French in their movement west. They're nearly eradicating Apaches from the, from the face of the earth. I mean, suddenly this enormous power balance shifts. It's very dramatic in history. And it's very cool and very interesting. And it all has to do with their ability with the horse. But, Sam, why so brutal? That's the part I don't get. And we can talk about the other side of it in a minute with McKenzie. But the stuff that you delineate in the book, like I'm thinking about Salt Creek Massacre, and I'm thinking about dragging a baby through a cactus patch. Like, where did that stuff come from? Well, it's interesting that the Comanches were not alone in their brutality. So if if we dial back to 
pre-white men, right? You have, what you have is you have Native American tribes, and let's just say these are Plains Indians we're talking about now, although the Eastern Indians, you know, Iroquois and, uh, you know, the, uh, were very, very brutal also. But if you go back there, you have these Native American tribes living in pretty much harmony and stasis. They're, they're on, the, on the plains now. The buffalo is a way of life, right? They're raiding as a way of life. Um, we both both raid to steal horses and raid for revenge for, for people killed. And they're, in, they're, they're not enough of them to exhaust the enormous food supply. They get everything from the buffalo, right? All the all food, lodging, you know, weapons, clothing, everything comes from the buffalo. And there's no way they can ever exhaust that resource. So they've got this great kind of world, and one of the things that's in that world is a a policy, I guess. You guess you call it a backwards golden rule, which is just every if you if the, if you get captured, you're in trouble. You're going to be tortured. Uh, you know, and, and this is true if you're if you're the Wichitas or the Navajos or the Comanches or the Arapahos or the Cheyennes. If you are if you are a, a, a child, let's say a baby is cat baby is killed automatically. You can't do anything with the baby. Children, uh, you know, maybe 8, 9, 10, 11, sometimes taken into uh, the tribe. Uh, and um, for, for the moment, let's just forget about white men. These are just Indians and uh, raiding, raiding other Indians. And you have, you know, if you're a, you know, a 15-year-old uh, woman, you're probably going to be made a slave. If you're a, if you're a male, you're going to be tortured quick to death quickly if they don't have a lot of time and slowly if they do have a lot of time. And this is the way it is. And everybody's happy with this. It, it takes the, you know, it takes the, the culture of, you know, of Anglo, the Anglo-Europeans, the culture of the Renaissance and the Judeo-Christian tradition and the morality of that to suddenly run into this and go, oh my God, we're horrified that they're going to kill a baby. We're horrified that they're going to kill, you know, uh, a, a young woman or, or torture or torture captives. So I don't know if I'm making sense, but if you can't, you know, it, 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 uh, until the white men get here to be shocked by it, nobody's shocked. Hmm. Okay, now we're shocked. We come, oh, I can't believe what, what they, you know, no, the, the people on the frontier couldn't believe what they did to captives. It was just brutal beyond any imagination. These are all Plains Indians now. Um, and really all, most, most Native American tribes had traditions like this. It's, it's just a strange part of the culture um, you can you can explain it and justify it. I go to some lengths to try to do that, but it's just part of the deal. And so, out on the frontier, you have Indians behaving that way, and you have white men. You mentioned Sand Creek, one of the greatest white massacres of Indians. But there, you know, Custer and the Washita. There were lots and lots of really brutal and lots and lots of unrecorded sort of militia murders of Indians and children and women and everything else. And the Texas Rangers were no bargain, let me tell you. They learned about no quarter from the Indians. So the, the frontier was really brutal. It was brutal both sides and both ways. And uh, uh, and if you see them, the, one of my favorite movies is The Searchers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's one of the great things about it to me is John Wayne, it, it changed my mind about John Wayne. He's so great in the movie. He just plays this bitter, just angry, mean frontier, you know, settler, and he captures so well the feeling that white people had for Indians. They just hated them, and and they all had stories. You know, somebody's wife had gotten eviscerated or raped, or somebody had been killed. And of course, the Indians had their own stories. Indians 
hated Texans just as bitterly as you know the the Texans hated Comanches. Yeah, one so tonight. Sam Gwynn joining us here. A little extended interview. Appreciate you taking time to do this, Sam Gwynn. But no to- problem. Tonight, my daughter goes to McKenzie Junior High to play in the playoffs of her little basketball league. And every time we walk in there, I point at that mural and I say, now that's Randall McKenzie. And to so many yeah. people, like most monuments, like most buildings, the name just erodes over time. It just becomes part of the culture. Talk to us about why Randall McKenzie was just the right man at the right moment. And I'd also like to ask, who was more tragic in the end, Stonewall or McKenzie? Well, that's an interesting question, yeah, because McKenzie goes crazy. Um, I mean, McKenzie loses his mind. Mm-hmm. So in some, I don't know, that's a really good question. I, I would say Jackson, but, but, but it's, it's, anyway, so McKenzie, there's this great moment, and in in, so I'll, 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 uh, I'll take this moment, it's the, uh, it's the fall, <coughs> excuse me, of 1871, and the uh, uh, the Comanche Wars have just been going on forever. They've been going on since the 1830s, and and nobody can do anything about them. I mean, there's there's this, the frontier keeps rolling kind of backwards and forwards, but there's there, the Civil War has taken m- much of the federal authority out of the uh, the region, and so the, during the Civil War, the 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 frontier, and and you might want to think about. Fort Worth as the frontier, or, you know, draw a line between Fort Worth and San Antonio, mm-hmm. roughly, kind of, rolling backwards, rolling forwards, when it, when it rolled backwards, whole counties would empty out, Comanche raids, and so you have this moment where, where the Civil War is over, and the guys who were running America are the grim warriors who destroyed the South, who unleashed more firepower than had ever been seen in the history of the universe. Uh, you know, these are the Union guys. So the president is Ulysses S. Grant. The head of the armies is William Tecumseh Sherman. And the head of armies in the West is Philip Sheridan. These are the boys. These are the people who, and you look at the casualties, the battles that, uh, of the Civil War. I mean, just the, I'm doing some research now on the Wilderness Campaign. of 85,000 in a couple of weeks. I mean, that kind of casualties. And now here we have a tribe with 25,000 people maybe 6,000 warriors left at this point. We're in the 1870s now, holding up the entire advance of American civilization as people saw it, right? So, Grant, besides Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, decide enough of this, we're going to stop this, and we're going to stop this forever. And, and this movement is going to culminate in the Red River War, which takes place in West Texas in the Panhandle. But the first move is they take Grant's favorite officer, young officer from the Civil War, Randall Slidell McKenzie from a very prominent uh, uh, Southern family, and uh, he's going to send McKenzie to a place just a little bit east of Lovett called Blanco Canyon, where this young chief named Quana uh, is, is with, with, uh, based uh, with some warriors and, and, and lodges. He's sort, of a, he's sort of one of those young war chiefs, of which there were many in the Comanche. So what they do, so there's this great moment in the fall of 1871 where Grant dispatches McKenzie. Uh, you know, he's staging out of Fort Concho and Fort Richardson. He moves west with 600 mounted bluecoats. It's great, and 20 Tonkawa scouts, and they're going now to get and eradicate these Comanches. And uh, it leads to the Battle of Blanco Canyon, one of the great or just absolutely amazing battles in the sense that Quana just 
schools, Mackenzie, up and down on the rules of Plains warfare, including taking his entire village up and down the Caprock like three times to get away from the hmm. Union soldiers. And during this, this battle, you know, as I say, Quana um, wins in the sense that he gets away. Uh, he takes a... It's one of the few times when a you know, commander goes into battle with, the, with a village, actually, of old men and horses you know, and, and wins. <laughs> but during this, he schools Mackenzie. It's the first of Mackenzie's schooling in how to fight out there. And um, Mackenzie will later use all of the things that Quanah taught him in the Red River War, which we see in 1874 and 1875, which will be the end of all of the frontier, the end of the... the, the Southern Indians now, Arapahoe, Cheyenne, Comanche, everybody is going to be the end. But it kind of begins with this oddball victory 20 miles east of, uh, of Lubbock in 1871. And, and so Mackenzie, it's interesting, Mackenzie gets the schooling right. He comes back. He is the sort of point guy in the Red River War, which is this, the, literally the last, the last gasp here. It's the last of the Indian power at the end of which Quanah brings the last of the starving Comanches in to Fort Sill. And who's the commandant at Fort Sill? Reynolds Slidell McKenzie. And the first thing Quanah does is he, you know, Quanah, the great legendary Comanche chief, right, he walks into uh, to, uh, McKenzie's office in Fort Sill, uh, Lawton, Oklahoma, and he says, you know, my name's Quanah, and by the way, my mother is Cynthia Ann Parker, and I'd like to find her. And, you know... <laughs> Cynthia Parker being the most famous mm-hmm. captive on the frontier, and nobody had any idea that this guy had some relation to her. So Mackenzie's jaw hits the floor. He picks it up, and then he proceeds to help Quana find, try to find his long-lost mother. And it's a very interesting, I can go on, it's a very interesting story. Mackenzie um, has something happen to him, and it's not clear exactly what. It may have been a hit on the head, uh, but he goes... Pretty, pretty quickly insane pretty quickly after that. Oh, I'm sorry, before that happens, he's the one who gets sent north to clean up Custer's mess. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and he does clean up Custer's mess. And when he comes back, he, uh, he has this incident, whatever it is, and he kind of, uh, he's so crazy, and it happens so quickly, that they literally, they take him to a train under false pretext and put him on the train, and they put him on the train this is the army doing this for the east and he ends up in an insane asylum for a while and then i think living with his sister but uh uh he he uh he, he goes down very very quickly at a very very young age so it's a very mm-hmm. um it was an interesting uh, he's interesting in a lot of ways one one way that he's interesting is the same way that Quana is that both men come to power if you will on the plains of texas or in, in the western part of texas as very young men, right at the end of everything, if, at the end of the, the Indian War. And they both, this, this great kind of explosion of, uh, of violence that they're in the middle of, and then it's gone, and then Quanah's on the reservation, and Mackenzie's, you know, crazy as a box of cricket li- li- crickets living in New York. Hmm. Well, let's take that for just a second. Uh, we'll to go back. Uh, Sam Gwynn, author of Empire of the Summer Moon, join us here a couple more minutes. You talk about the middle frontier and the living memory. I want to quote, there's this great artist that I just came across. He's just an upstart. His name is David Blake Terrell. He wrote a song that I'm absolutely fascinated about. It's called Prairie Town. It's 
folks can go out there and find it. But I want to read to you this verse, and I want to ask you how that living memory you think impacts people's thinking on the Yano even today. This is the verse. When they came out here on the wagons, were they doomed before they arrived? Is it just the grassland or Cynthia Ann that cursed those who occupied? But you trade those cold blue northerns, to see the deer and the antelope play, to see the morning clear through your horse's ears, you thank God for life on the range. Is this something that still impacts people philosophically, morally, politically, in every way in this part of the country? I, I, I think so. I mean, there's, there's a... I do. I, I've talked many times about how I think that current-day Texas reflects uh, what happened to it, because what happened to it was completely not what happened to any other state. And... Uh, it is. It is true. As I said, you know where, where you are out there is. Uh, I mean, you're, you you guys literally live on the edge of the last frontier. It's the last place settled. So I mean, it, it, there is. I think a feeling of, uh, and I get that feeling. It's one of the reasons I love it out there. Is I, I just get this feeling that I really am on. There is no frontier anymore. But I'm uh, the closest thing that I that there is to it. But politically speaking, um, you know, it's sort of. Texas is famous, let's just, we'll take one political idea. Um, Texas is famous for, you know, not being, shall we say, not being a, a national leader in social services provided, let's just say. So when, when George Bush was running for president, people made a lot out of this, right? So we were 49th in this and 48th in this, and all these kind of measures that, say, Massachusetts and New Jersey would regard as important. Right? And so my friends from Massachusetts and New Jersey would call and ask me about this, and I'd say, you know, I say, you, you may want Texas to be like New Jersey, but I said, it's not going to be like New Jersey. And one of the reasons is, is because we fought a war, a 40-year war. If you go back to the beginnings of this war, actually just before the beginning of the Comanche War, what you have is this little republic, it's its own country now, right, in 1836, it's its own country. It's facing two enemies that neither one will accept surrender. Comanches don't have a word for it. And, of course, Santa Ana flew mm. the flag of no quarter at the Alamo, right? So Mexicans, neither, neither side is accepting surrender. You have a, a, a little republic that has no money and is facing these two implacable enemies and is getting no help from anybody. Not only that, but the way Texas was settled... As, as a, as, you know, and if you look at, let's say, Canada and Mexico, where the government would always come in first, you know, with the Presidio and the soldiers and the church and the institutions, and then, very timidly, the, the pioneers would follow. Out here in Texas, you had these crazy Scots-Irish people from Tennessee and Alabama pushing, like the Parkers, way out past any institution. So these Texans were used to, there just weren't institutions. They didn't look to institutions. They didn't look to the government. There was no government for the first 10 years of their existence. Wow. And then they had to fight this 40-year war. And it conditioned who Texans are. And, uh, you know, we, we're getting a big influx of you know, people like me, also Californians and everything else. But there's things in the Texas spirit that persist. And I think self-sufficiency is one of them. Uh, I, I can go on about it. But there, there is a feeling that I... Uh, that this, the, the whole premise of the settlement here was diametrically opposed to, let's say, Massachusetts or yeah, Connecticut, well, my name. And then... Completely different. And so I, I see it that way. I say, you know, I used to sit around with Paul Burka, the politics writer at Texas Monthly, and we would agree that, you know, the reason Texas is so different 
I think in a positive way, but is uh, is this long war? Nobody else had to fight a war. And like then that. you had a war against the worst hard time right after that, right? I mean, you had the depression and then, had and then the Dust Bowl, and yeah. And the, wait, so you're talking about it? It, it that's the I don't know. It, it, it I think these are formative experiences uh, that, that people have, and hmm. and it. it and the interesting thing is that, that, it, that they persist. I think they persist in spite of, you know, Texas is obviously this boom state. Everything's expanding like crazy. And, uh, you know, and I don't know, like, it seems like Texas Tech is three times bigger than it used to be. Everything's bigger and bigger. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, but these, these things persist. These wow. feelings, these ideas, this, that, uh, and this kind of frontier mentality. And, you know, I, I think Mike Leach is a classic example of of the Texas frontier mentality. When he what he was running out there in the two, when he came to Tech was frontier football. It was pioneer football. It was just not what anybody else was even thinking of doing. Anyway, one of the reasons I was so interested in one of the reasons I wanted to write about him. So. Yeah, well, come on. Promise us you'll come on again and talk about Mike Leach and talk about the perfect pass. So let's do that sometime. Yeah. Whenever you'd like to, we'll just That'd talk about. Mike Leach and uh, and how he changed the entire sport of American football. We, he and Hal did, but uh, no. uh, I'd be happy to, love to. Great. Sam Gwynn, again, the book is Empire of the Summer Moon, The Perfect Pass, Rebel Yell. I highly recommend Empire of the Summer Moon. Thanks for taking time with us, Sam. Okay, Jay, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, a real pleasure. Hey, before I get you out on this break, come back in with a blue-collar bill. There's one bank in Lubbock that's withstood the worst hard times and everything in between. Uh, that is American Bank of Commerce. That's been on a bank corner in Lubbock. There may be a church on every corner in most communities, but in Lubbock, there's also a bank on every corner. And they've been standing there by the same name for as long as I can remember. I've got friends who went to started ABC Bank in college, still work there. It's kind of culture they have. So whenever I started to look at launching other side of Texas, you know what I did? I went to ABC Bank, that's for sure. Uh, service, quality customer service and loyalty since 1962. Do what we did for your banking needs. Check them out at theabcbank.com. That's theabcbank.com, 1-888-902-2552. Stick with us. We'll have a little blue-collar bill report. All those bombings through the mail. You know who deals with mail? Blue-collar bill. He's got a couple of things to say about that. As we close out this edition of Other Side of Texas, we'll be right back with you. Hey, this segment brought to you by Charity Leasing Realtor. I love her, and you will too. Believe me. Hard work with integrity to find your perfect home right on budget. Check her out. CharityLeeson.com. CharityLeeson.com. 806-370-7340. Wouldn't be a good addition of, if you want to just take a great addition to the other side of Texas and make it even better, you got to get Blue Collar Bill involved here. How are you doing, Blue Collar Bill? Hey, how about you? you? Just what is the weather doing today? I can't figure out where the wind's blowing from, but it's just been cloudy and it's not going to rain. Yeah, it's it's whipping around. It's blowing out of the east and then the west and, and then in every other direction. I can't figure it out. This it's is populous weather, blue collar Bill. This is populous weather. Populous, like you don't know where we're coming from, but we're coming. Oh, oh, oh I get it. 
Yeah. I must have misunderstood you over the, the roar of the American Bill <laughs> So, midweek last week, I'm thinking, holy cow, all this stuff's coming through the mail. Who do I know? Oh, I know Blue Collar Bill. Tell us what you were thinking as you were watching those awesome bombings coming down and wondering what you were carrying in your payload. Yeah, I, it really made me nervous. Uh, you know, the, the, the kid was leaving packages on people's porch. I guess everybody's aware of the story. Uh, and then he starts shipping this stuff through the, through, through the you know, parcel freight system, UPS, FedEx, uh, USPS. And, and, you know, we in my line of work, we're always a little leery about that stuff because, I mean, quite frankly, I don't, I don't know what's on my truck. I'm headed back into Lubbock right now. I've just, I've just picked up uh, freight in five cities, and I, I have no idea what's on board. And so when things go like that start happening, I start getting a little bit, uh, a little bit antsy and start really eyeballing what's being put on my truck a little harder. And so the kid did himself in. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was really tragic. Um, Are you willing to call it terrorism, blue collar bill? Is that terrorism? You know, I, I don't know. I, I guess it is. I, I stay confused by some of these, some of these seemingly arbitrary terms. I, I still can't define what hate crime is because I don't know what a like crime is. Whenever you write your book, that needs to be a chapter. Has anybody ever committed a crime out of respect and love and admiration yeah. that we needed the differentiation of hate crime? So I don't understand exactly what constitutes terrorism or exactly what constitutes a hate crime. Um, you know, some blue-collar guy just drive a truck, right? That's right. So, what else, you got anything? we got about a minute left. You got anything else on your mind you need to get off? Blow off steam on the radio? Oh, yeah, uh, you know, we, we were truly blessed. And of course, I talked to you about it. We, uh, we had lost our AC last week at the house, a complete and total collapse of our HVAC system, the yeah. pressure locked up solid. Uh, and as fate would have it, uh, this is a neat story. It's almost like an after-school movie. I, I, I've been saving money to get my wife down to Mexico for our 25th anniversary here in June. A lot of people know about it. Yeah, talking about of, passport of, problems. Yeah, a lot of scrimping and saving and getting passports and booking trips and trying to make this thing magical for the missus. And, and, and I've got the money in hand, and I'm ready to roll. Then the AC goes out. In short, I'm sitting down there at the bank. Uh, the, the, the guy's approved me for a loan. He slid the documents across the table. I'm about to sign on. My phone's ringing, ringing, ringing. It won't stop. They're blowing me up. I finally tell the banker, I got to stop, sir. Something's happening. I got to answer this call. And it was my wife on the phone. And she said, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Uh, some of the folks that she works with are, are, are so kind and, and, and such good people and embody everything that I hope that my son will be as a man. They got together and they bought us an HVAC system. Wow. Bill, look at you. I, I couldn't believe it. People's these, Choice these, Award. Yeah, these two young men show up at my house with a brand new unit inside, outside, loaded off the truck, and I was like, whoa, whoa, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not completely up to speed on this, but this is all getting hung in my house for free. Out of the benevolence and love of, of, of some of my wife's co-workers and friends, and, and I just wanted, you know, they asked me not to, to call them out by name, 
they, they like for their philanthropy to be very low-key. Uh, but, man, what a blessing. What a great group of people. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to send a shout-out to them and let them know that, Look at that. My, my God, there, there is a special place in heaven for them. West Texas forever. Because it wasn't yeah. cool last week. I mean, it was like July comes in March. So that's a great story. Bill, thank you, buddy. Yeah, yeah, it's just a, just another another example of West Texans taking care of West Texans when they didn't have to and weren't asked to simply because it's the right thing to do, and I think that's the way we should all live. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bill. Have a great week. Thanks, sir. Well, look at that. That was pretty awesome. That's some, uh, some West Texas forever. I love what S.C. Gwynn just closed out here. I love what he said about that, how... That Comanche Wars and then Worst Hard Time, Depression, Dust Bowl is a formative experience that still is persistent. And we look towards one another uh, for lots of solutions, and we look towards wiser policy for other solutions. That's this edition of The Other Side of Texas. This will be up on iTunes. You can go check out our SoundCloud. Go to othersideoftexas.com. Have a new piece up in the next few days. Until then, to borrow from the great Bob Bullock, only death will end my love affair with the other side of Texas. We'll see you next time. I ain't into